0: Peter Zablocki's newest book, Bullets That Changed America, 13 Historic Assassinations, Duels, Misfires, and Murders, from McFarland Publishing, available now wherever books are sold. One gunshot by a single person could be powerful enough to move a whole nation. Well known are the assassinations of Abraham Lincoln, John F. Kennedy, William McKinley, and Martin Luther King Jr. History, however, is littered with lesser known gunshots that have had equally echoing outcomes. Some were small mistakes or misjudgments others' intentional acts that sparked events documented in our history textbooks. A single bullet serves as the catalyst for each of the stories in The Bullets That Changed America. We may or may not know who fired it, but we know each bullet's endpoint and the effects it had on America's trajectory, the wars, social movements, and political and economic paradigm shifts. The names of those involved may not to many be recognizable, but the events their acts precipitated are etched in American history. Bullets That Changed America 13 Historic Assassinations, Duels, Misfires, and Murders. Available from McFarland Publishing, wherever books are sold. Now, back to our show. This is Peter.
1: And this is Tom.
0: And you're listening to History Teachers Talking (laughs) Podcasts. All right. This is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Fresca, and welcome back to our podcast. Tommy, what do we got?
1: Well, today we're going to be looking at a um, not like another one of these pop pop culture icons, right? That comes out there. Some of that I know you've been talking about wanting to do for a long time. You have like a real uh, fixation. Know, real, fixation. Yeah, fixation. Sure. <laughs> I was going to say a little man crush, maybe, but something like fixation works too. All right, things are I need. You really like this time frame. You like the whole um, black and white era. Basically, my right. So we're gonna be looking at the times and the life of Harry Houdini. So let me ask you this
0: question. I, I actually pulled this up on YouTube today because I was trying to tell my son that the Jawas in Star Wars make a noise that literally sounds like they're saying Houdini. I'm gonna and, like and my sh- son's like, shot and stuff. Yeah, my son's like, no, they don't. And I'm like, no, they do. So legit, I went and I like YouTube'd it, and I just did like Jawa sounds. First of all, they have like a compilation of all of them from every movie, which is kind of insane that someone would take time to do
1: that. It's like people who do
0: podcasts on Houdini. Like,
1: who has that much time?
0: I guess, right? But sure enough, the Jawas do say Houdini. It's a thing. It's really a thing. All right. Anyway, (laughs) it was just a side note. A side note here, Tom. Harry Houdini, or really Eric Weiss, right? Eric Weiss, yes. Born March 24th, 1874, died in mysterious circumstances, which we shall discuss yeah. in, this, in this podcast, sure, yeah. on October 31st, 1926. He was a Hungarian escape artist, illusionist, stunt performer, uh, really known for his escape acts, and also very much against spiritualism.
1: He was like not hardcore. a fan of spiritual, big time, big time. Which yeah. is weird because at, at the time, a lot of other escape artists, magicians, would just you know again turn of the century. They would say that they had powers, right? That they could like walk through talk objects, talk to the dead, or like talk to the dead or the spirits why? is what helped them. The spirits would help them do things and stuff like that, and ghosts and everything. And he was like, no, that's not how it works. You would, you have like hidden mock picks, or you can wiggle things out if you apply pressure certain ways. Like he was more, and he he was out there really trying to stop a big skeptic of those things and trying to stop them all also.
0: Yeah, and, and I think we'll talk about the fact, I mean, he had lawsuits against different spiritualists saying like, no, you're fake, you're fake. And he actually made it his business, while he's already a really known wealthy person, he kind of made it his business to expose a lot of these spiritualists yeah. that he goes, "There is no ghost, there is no um, special powers, like you just have to be witty. And he sued people for fraud, and he won a lot of these cases. He wrote books against them. Um, he had famous authors kind of argue with him publicly about this, which we'll talk about. And ultimately, this this kind of plays a role in his death because some people believe to this day that it might have been a group of spiritualists. Yeah, uh, notable to kill ones, him, right? Yeah, that actually might have had something to do with his death. What do we got, Tom? Where does this guy start? Where's the beginning of Harry Houdini? What do we know about his you know early beginnings and youth? Well,
1: he was born, like you said, Eric Weiss, right? He was born in Budapest, Kingdom of Hungary. He was uh, part of a Jewish family. His father was a rabbi, right? um mm-hmm. and his mother and his mother was he was very close with his mother that's something that you'll see a lot if you do any research on him a lot of pictures of him and his mother um when he becomes rich and famous he buys his mother a um dress that was worn i think by a queen of england and uh, he brings her out out to all the relatives and she's wearing this dress and she's smiling and he's like this was like the greatest day of my life so he's he's a big time with his mother he was one of yeah, seven children uh, he's yeah. one of seven children, and they arrive in the United States in on uh, in 1878. So you guys to remember, we we still know the name Houdini today. This guy's like in the eight, he's from the 1800s, like that's when he was born. Yeah. So it's a long time ago, a long, long time ago. Yeah. And it's when they come over from um, that, they changed the spelling of their name, and he changed it a little bit too. And they wind up living in um, Appleton, Wisconsin, where again his father served as a um, rabbi. Rabbi, yeah, for a Jewish congregation there. And um, his family wound up moving to Milwaukee, and they were pretty—they were pretty poor when they were there. Yeah. And then um, they went from there; they moved to um, New York City, would live in a boarding house, and he was joined. And that's very kind of as a child, where he um, grew up, he worked a lot of these small jobs, right? Just basically kind of like uh, pay off debt and stuff. And one of them was a trapeze, a trapeze artist. And that's yep. when he started calling himself the Prince of the Air because he actually was an aviator too. Later on in his life, he was big-time yep. uh, pilot. Yeah,
0: I know he was an athlete. He was an aviator, uh, but Trapeze, you know, trapeze artist. Like that was his. That was the beginning. He was nine years old, and that started as like basically like a, like a public debut. But it was really a gig to try to help his father make money because in 1887, money, yeah. it was just his father and himself that moved to New York City, and they moved into this boarding house because they couldn't even afford to bring the rest of the family yet from Milwaukee. So. He starts picking up jobs and winds up basically being like a circus act, you know, the Prince of the Air. And, and he helps make enough money for his father and himself to bring the rest of the family over to New York City. Shortly thereafter, he's a young kid. He starts to perf- uh, perform different magic tricks. And he calls himself Harry Houdini, essentially after a French magician. Right. Uh, the guy's name was Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin, and Houdini, Harry Houdini. Uh, had this belief that if you add again misplaced belief that if you add an I in the name at the end of a name of something it meant like esque like you know like sh- short esque or you know kind of like something so he added the I to it so it was Houdini meaning like like Houdin as for his first name it was actually it stems from his nickname right Harry which is a nickname for from at least the nickname that his family gave him so. Uh, Harry became Harry and he became Harry Houdini. As a teenager, he is essentially taught this craft by another magician, Joseph Rin, um at, a, at an athletic club in New York. And initially, he, he kind of doesn't work out for him. He's not a great magician by any means. And it's not work, per- yeah. Yeah, he performs in like dime shows and here and there, like shows up on uh, on the street, really. Even at some point, he doubles as... Um, wild man in the circus, which is like the worst job you could have in a circus.
1: Yeah, he wasn't doing escape acts yet for the most part. He was doing mostly card tricks, I think yep. I was reading a lot of card another one and- of his names, right? Well, yeah, anything to build himself. Remember, he's a showman. So there's anything, anything to build himself and things of that nature.
0: Yeah, it almost seems like what's going to stick, right? Like, all right, I'm the king of cards. But they actually said that he wasn't really that great with his card tricks. So that didn't pan out. And then his brother joins him. I, so this is at the time now. This we're talking like 1890s. 90, yeah,
1: 1894, 95.
0: Yeah, he's a teenager, and and him and his brother start experimenting with these escape acts, and you know they're getting booked here and there at these dime shows and dime museums and and sideshows and even the circus. And brother's name was Dash, whose nickname at least. First name was Theodore, at Coney Island, right? They become they open an act as Brothers Houdini, where they're trying this whole escape thing, which we'll get into in a second. Uh, this is where he meets his wife, right? Patrice Bess. Uh, Ra-
1: Roner. She Wait, was originally um, Dash was like going after her at first, or trying to court her. I guess you would say first, yeah. but she wanted to marry Houdini. And they, he was madly in love with her.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, no. I mean, and the thing is, what's interesting too, if you read their story, is she was Catholic, and her family was like very yeah. much against this um, see, marriage, eventual Jewish, marriage. Yeah. yeah, because he was Jewish, and after um, after he passes away, she lives for like another thirty years or so, and when she passes away, against her own wishes. Her family refuses to bury her next to him because they refuse. They're so Catholic that they refuse to bury her in a Jewish cemetery, which is interesting because that was her wish. Like that was her husband and her family. Talk about holding a grudge, huh? So Bess Houdini kind of takes over from Dash and, and she kind of replaces him in the act. And they become known as the, instead of the Houdini brothers, just simply the Houdinis. And at that point, Bess pretty much becomes his stage assistant for the remainder of Houdini's career. So then in um, 1899, he meets and signs with a manager, Martin Beck in Minnesota handcuffs act. Right. And he's kind of known for this one.
1: Yeah. So So, yeah, Beck really started that Beck really started to advertise him and really advised him. Listen, let's focus on your escape acts. Forget about all these other things. We're going to focus on the, um, just the escape acts. And within months, like it really, he starts to become really popular. So he starts going on tours of Europe. Um, he does some interviews. And he's really starting to take off. And he yeah. gets a demonstration of how he can escape with his handcuffs at Scotland Yard.
0: That's the and big just, one. That's the one that makes him. That's
1: the big one, Scotland Yard. And then that's also when he starts challenging other police forces around the world to listen, come up with something, and I'm going to escape it. Yep. And he succeeded in like the police didn't understand how he could do this. And then he just becomes booked and he starts to make a lot of money. They say he's making about $300 a week, which is probably close. It's over $9,000 in today's money. So it kind of shows you yep. inflation right there. But um, so he's becoming super popular with these handcuffs. And now he's known as the handcuff king. So this is his next, you know.
0: That's his gig. Uh, his,
1: his next right? gig is the handcuff king. He's escape the, all these things. And he does and this he, in he,
0: Netherlands, Germany, France, Russia, all like, all across world. Europe. Yeah. And he's getting paid so much that he's actually one of the world's highest paid entertainers. Remember, guys, there's no radio yet. There is no TV yet. Uh, There's no movies. I mean, that's not even like uh, motion pictures aren't even really a thing yet. Like this guy is just simply word of mouth, becoming one of the highest paid entertainers in the world. And it all stems from the fact that, you know, he started challenging all of these different police stations. He's like, put me in handcuffs. Eventually, it got to like chain me up, put me in handcuffs, lock me in a box, and then watch me get out of it. And. He continued and continued and continued to the extent that he basically, you know, becomes super famous. Then um, he's finally, I mean, again, I feel like as I studied this, he's definitely has a lot to do with, he definitely has a lot to do with courts. He's always suing people or getting sued, interesting enough, um, or starting patents. So that way, like I trademarked this, I trademarked this, like and then he would just sue people. But while he was in Germany, a police officer actually alleged um, that he escaped through one of his escapes through bribery.
1: So Houdini sued yeah, him. He sued a guy, yeah. Well, did you see how he won the case. This was the one where he basically
0: yeah. said to the uh,
1: he, he, The judge, "Yeah, he winds up um, like, look, I could do he, this.
0: I'll show you. I can
1: do. I'll show you, and I'll unlock the safe. And he unlocks the safe. Mm-hmm. He breaks into the safe, but he later says that the that the judge forgot to lock the safe. That's what, That's what it was. He was yeah. Able to do it. but <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Right? But yeah, he wins that case because of it.
0: Because yeah, he tells the judge like, no, no, I could get out of things. I could, I could unlock anything. I This, did is, not. this, this is what did, I do. Right. Yeah. And then he basically is like, I can unlock your safe, and the judge is like, fine. If you unlock my safe, like we believe you. And then he's like, yeah, the safe wasn't locked, but he unlocked it. Eh. All right. So after that, he winds up returning. He's now he's he's like a made man when it comes to really uh, Europe, and in a sense that he has the money, he's got the wealth, he's got a title. But that's mostly in Europe. So he returns from Europe, and then what winds up happening is he. First of all, this is where the whole idea of a dress comes into play that you talked about, right? He buys this dress made for Queen Victoria in, for tons of money and gives it to his mother and presents her to all the relatives at his big party. Um, and then in 1904, he officially returns to the U.S. after going back and forth between Europe and purchases a house um, in Harlem, New York City, right? And it, is, uh, it cost him $25,000, which is equivalent to about close to $800,000 in today's money. He creates his own publication while he's here. Uh, it doesn't really work out and in his publication he really kind of wanted to
1: just use it he just talked um, about himself he, yeah he yeah. used to kind of promote himself and to attack spiritualists so it didn't they only lasted like two volumes yeah um, and that, you I see know. that that's a lot of things he said a lot when um Houdini started getting on a roll he like started really talking that's what he started to talk about like he would get himself like robbed up it was all he i yep. think went after his rivals because he was always there was a lot of other individuals at that time that would try to one-up him or take steal his technique Steal That's one reason why he stops doing a lot of the handcuff tricks is because so many other people do it. So he ups the ante and he starts doing these like much more intense, um, escapes and which we can talk about, get like the straight jackets, the, yeah, um, I feel like we'll mention the mailbags, yep. o- obviously the milk, can't, the milk crates and the, um, Chinese water torture, but he does all that piece. People are keep on imitating his handcuff one. So he's like, well, I'm not doing that anymore. Then I'm going to go on and do something else. And he's basically trying to make it so difficult, so intense that no one else is even going to try it because it's so dangerous. This is what he yeah. started to do with some of these escapes. And
0: actually, what he what's interesting too is what he does is as soon as he does this act, he often started his acts and, um, and did them in front of just a select group of people, so that way there was a witness. And then he would trademark it right away and copyright it, like, okay, this is my move. So if you want to do this move, you have to give me credit. And he actually made a lot of money that way, but also, you know, sued a lot of people that would try to like replicate try what he do was some, doing. Something
1: similar, something similar, yeah.
0: And he was like, no, 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 I did that first. You got to give me credit kind of thing. Um, and he never claimed. So people were like, dude, you have to have supernatural powers. I mean, like, they would put it, they would lock him up, you know, water filled, like you said, milk can. They would put him in like a coffin box, uh, nail it shut, put chains around it, put chains inside it and on him, drop it to the bottom of a river. Uh, and then he would emerge within a minute and they were like, How do you do this? Like you have to have natural powers. And he's like, No nope, supernatural powers. Like, I'm just really clever. Like, that's how I roll. Um I mean he's suspended upside down, right? In a locked glass and steel cabinet full of like overflowing water, the famous or infamous Chinese water torture cell. Um, you know, in a sense, he he you know, he kind of becomes the face of all magicians. And actually that kind of towards the end becomes his big not job, but I guess role, right? Um, because he becomes the president of the Society of American Magicians, yeah. um, basically from 1917 until 1926, and he is the longest running president up to that point. Each president of the American, you know, Society of American Magicians was only president for one year. He's the president from 1917 to 26. And he's continuously trying to, like, advertise it and go to other magicians and try to get magicians involved in a society of American magicians and try to create some credibility um, for magicians. It's almost like he's trying to make the idea of being a magician reputable for profession, I would yeah, say. Well, He's right? making a business. It's becoming a yeah. business,
1: like a business model for it, like anything else.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's now the richest and longest surviving organization of magicians in the world. Um, they say there's like 6,000 members right now that pay dues. Um, and almost like 300 assemblies worldwide from what he started. Like, you know, we, this is a respectable um, position. Oh, my God. I'm, I keep on thinking of like the, some of the stuff that he did. Like the elephant. We can talk about a He made a the well, he, I mean, made, he made
1: – yeah. Well, he, he had to buy that trick. Yes, I that did was see something that. That I, So he actually bought that trick from a um, another mu- m- um, magician. Because, again, he was all about this. He was like, you know, something was really good. And um, that's what he did. He just made the – he made um, – jenny the vanishing yeah, elephant was, yeah, this yeah, was in yeah. 1917 so he just made it disappear on stage and he would do that for a while but again like he never really stuck with some of these acts that long and a lot of times what happens after he would do it for a while then his brother would keep on doing it like yep. a lot of like the, like the milk the milk um can escape and some of the chinese war torture he would do it for like four years and then you know on and off and then his brother would keep on doing it. his brother kept on doing these tricks into the 1940s yeah
0: like his number one thing was vaudeville and uh, you know vaudeville could be a podcast in itself uh, ultimately you you would have theaters in, in you know different cities whether there were big cities like new york city or boston or even smaller cities um pretty much wherever a city could put in a theater again this is like 1900 1917 um you have silent films that are just coming out this is whole new thing but vaudeville is key if you had a theater in town You would you would basically have uh, the theater owners book these vaudeville acts and these, you know, high paid performers would come in to do the different shows, whether it was magic tricks, whether it was dance routines, whether it was comedy things. And and, you know, think of like Abbott and Costello kind of vaudeville, you know, like this idea of just different acts doing, you know, doing their thing and entertaining people. And that's kind of what he became the most notable for Uh, people wanted to book his act in these vaudeville theaters. Let's talk about some of his craziest capes that this guy did. I mean, he almost died numerous times, but one Several specifically, times. right? Several times.
1: Yeah, well, I guess I start one of the beginning ones, which was um, the Daily Mirror Challenge, mm-hmm. which had, took place in London in 1904, where there was basically – Daniel Hart was a locksmith, and he said I, he spent five years making these special handcuffs. And Houdini actually accepts the challenge, and he decides to perform this at a matinee, and um, about 4,000 people, about 100 journalists come to this, you know, event. It's all hyped up. It's like super – people are really excited about it. And this, um, the escape attempt dragged on for over an hour. Um, he kept on coming in and out. He, um, well, I thought it. he
0: wasn't going to be able to do it. This, there's so much controversy because they're like, dude, his wife yes. totally helped him.
1: Well, some people say his wife helped him. Other people say he actually could have got out of it in like five minutes. But he was a showman, so he was making it like – like take longer but basically i want to um he did ask for the cuffs to be removed so he could take his coat off because it was so hot and they said no because then you're going to see how the cop how the cuffs get unlocked we're not gonna and these are like special that.
0: made cuffs that have like a
1: six yeah. six inch key to unlock Yeah, just like. right. exactly yeah so he takes out a pen knife and cuts off his jacket using his teeth yeah and then um basically um and one it goes back wife, behind the curtain right because they yeah, see him
0: you see me behind yeah. the curtain so you see what he's doing but like you don't see the intricacies of it yeah you it's kind of like what it's, yeah
1: and his wife comes on one and gives him a kiss. And that's when they say, oh, she was hiding the thing in his mouth. And also gives him a glass of water, I think, at one point. He's like, oh, the, yeah. the water had the key in it. But he like said, the key was six inches long. You're not going to be able to hide that yeah. um, or anything like that. But basically, he winds up eventually um, getting out of it. He comes back from the curtain. After about an hour and 10 minutes, he emerged free. And he was exhausted. He even said it was the most difficult escape of his career. He broke down and cried afterwards. And the crowd was so excited. And, again, this is like pre – I don't think now people sitting there for an hour and a half or whatever watching a guy – Yeah, watch this take, guy behind a curtain like – Behind a hmm, curtain, really? trying to take handcuffs off. It's not going to be really like – I don't know. Pe- people are going to be like, oh, wow, this is amazing. Dude, but phones would be so-
0: out in three seconds. People would be oh, yeah. playing like you know Candy but Crush.
1: People were so like – went crazy for this. They, put, they threw him. They were cheering. They threw him on their shoulders. They're like, oh my God. Because literally every second that he's doing you know, it, they're just watching. Like, oh my God, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? It's just crazy Like how the intention spans like shifted since then. Crazy.
0: And then uh, you know, the milk can, uh, can escape kind of follows that. That is like him upping the ante. Um, and then basically the, the premise here is very simple. Houdini handcuffed and then sealed inside an oversized milk can that is filled with water and made his you know the idea is they place us behind a current again and boom let's see if he gets out he's in a sealed milk can uh full of water and he's handcuffed and people are trying to figure out how he's gonna get out of it and um, drowning. yeah oh drown and that was the key that was supposed to like add the like the another level of excitement because it's yeah, like all right, well, yeah he gets he out die. or he dies yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> that's It's one other you' even gonna
1: yeah you're gonna see him live or you're gonna see him die which is also like morbid i'm not sure if that would also fly right 2020 2020 standards you know
0: um yeah and i mean and this was this was a big thing you know like added a little extra element of suspense um eventually they modified it because they wound up make it a little harder so they put the milk crate um or can was then in itself locked inside another wooden chest which was then chained and padlocked so the <laughs> idea was like okay you're in a water can that and you have all these cuffs on and that's closed and then that's in a wooden chest which is chained and padlocked and then you have to somehow escape from it and he did this numerous times like this was like his jam uh, eventually as you mentioned earlier uh, his brother kind of picks that up um, even after his death and that's kind of his brother's signature move was this milk can escape
1: the, the milk can escape yeah but he kind of, because houdini kind of one-ups this around 1912 when he creates um, the chinese water torture yeah. His feet is basically are locked in stocks, and he's lowered upside down into a tank filled with water. There's like a metal cell around him with a glass front, so they could, the people could see him. So that's big too. Like he's underwater, but people can see him the whole time.
0: Yeah, he's and he's and, upside down.
1: Yeah, and yeah. Um, so he was enclosing this cage, and eventually he makes it even more difficult. Where I think they do, um, what do they do? They put him in like a straitjacket jacket also. So doing yep. all this other stuff while in water, runs, while uh, upside down. Water. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he and he's holding his breath the whole time. And I think a lot of times he did this with the um, milk can escape too. He had people like he would challenge people to try to hold their breath as long as he did, yes. as he was trying to get out. So he'd be to hold his breath for over three minutes.
0: Crazy. Well, going back to the milk escape real quick. What's interesting here is this was another case where he kind of brings us to court because um, other magicians started repeating this, and he went he basically sued some of them and says, "No, this act is copyrighted. Like I I invented this act. You need to pay me to do this act." and he winds up settling out of court in 1906 with another magician who actually agrees to publish an apology. Like, yes, I'm sorry, you did this first. Like, he's a businessman, you know, first and foremost. He does these tricks, but he's like, no, no, no. I'm going to make money off of anybody else doing the same similar tricks. The Chinese water torture, where they also made it more difficult for him, is they actually started putting him up where well, he's upside down in this big water cage, right, in a straight jacket. But then they would actually put in another cage within it that basically, like, would almost render him like unable to move. It was like a smaller cage within a cage. And even though this was often advertised as the Chinese water torture cell, uh, he never actually referred to it as such. Right? He called it the upside down. You know, the first time he did it was in Berlin and State. he continued doing this over and over again. This became kind of like another popular one until his death. Then you have suspended straight jacket escape. I mean, that's kind of self-explanatory, right? He's like, all right, suspend me from my ankles in a straitjacket jacket from a crane on top of you know, from a super tall building. This actually, turned, this was interesting because the first couple of times he did this, there was like heavy winds when he's up there at these tall buildings, and it started throwing him around so much that he literally just kept on hitting the side of the building and like almost knocking himself out as he was trying to do it. So as he after, as he like continued this act, they're like, all right, like you know, while we host him up by crane up to this big building. Let's actually connect like a wire to his leg, and every time you know the wind would actually like move him close to a building. This wire would like draw him back, so he could actually complete his trick without you know like banging his head against the wall. It's just I thought it was kind of interesting. There's video of this apparently you could see it. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. There's um, videos of Houdini doing these. Basically, he's hanging from yeah upside down. Thomas Edison.
0: We did a podcast on that. Thomas Edison is the reason we have Houdini's uh, recorded voice. Uh, the reason we have Houdini really, you know, videos of early stunts, like that's old Thomas Edison helped us out with some inventions. All right. So overboard box escape. This is a cool one.
1: One of his famous, this is one of the sons he would do. Um, he escaped from a nailed and roped uh, packing crate after it was lowered into water. So again, it's that threat of drowning. Uh, he first performed it in New York's East River, which I don't think you want to go in the East River. What did you nowadays? notice that actually the police mm-hmm, didn't
0: let him do it? I think it was yeah, the they piece, forbid him right? from
1: using it on one of the piers. So he had to hire a tugboat and invited the press on a tugboat. And then just he went it that way because they were said, no, you can't do it. But he was locked in handcuffs, leg irons, nailed in the crate, um, which was roped and weighed down to 200 pounds of lead and was then lowered into the water. And he escaped in 57 seconds. So he found his way out. How? I, was, I don't
0: understand. I don't you know. He, he,
1: he had magic. I think he just lied. But um, <laughs> the crate was pulled to the surface and it was found still to be intact and everything. And he performed his stunt many times. He performed a version of it on stage and um, had specially built like tanks and stuff like that. And this kind of inspired him to do his next, one of his last like really famous ones, which was his buried alive stunt, which the first time he did it in Santa Ana, California, he almost died. Yeah, he was this buried was alive. With, because he was buried alive, but he was buried alive with no casket in a pit six feet under. And... Yeah. He basically slowly dug his way out. He became exhausted and he panicked. and actually had a call for help, barely. He did break the service. He got out, technically. Yeah, well, his assist- hand
0: got out, right? Yeah. That, that was say- it.
1: Yeah, and his assistants had to pull him up because he passed out and he fell unconscious. And he said it was, you know, basically the weight of the earth was like on top of him, just killing him the whole time. So when he does this um, after this, well, when he does it afterwards, he's doing this to expose a spiritualist, right? an Egyptian performer named Rahim um, Bey, who said that he used supernatural powers to stay in a sealed casket because he didn't have to breathe, whatever. And He's like, no, you're lying. I'm going to stay in the casket longer than you. And I'm going to say that it's, I can do it through breathing techniques, not from no supernatural powers. But this is when he did it. After that, after that first attempt, every time he did it, he was in a casket or a box or something. He didn't just do like buried, buried.
0: Yeah, actually, one of the caskets that he would use to uh, to repeat this particular stunt uh, was used to transport his real body from Detroit the, to New the York City one. Yeah, yeah, yeah because like they had nothing else available, which is kind of crazy. It's like, all right, well, let's t- take the stunt. On top of that, obviously, a few things here that we kind of just briefly touch upon because I don't feel like they really deal much with any. But uh, he did, you know, start a movie company and actually made a lot of different. Not a lot. That's an exaggeration. He made some movies, you know, and kind of tried his. He's a businessman, so you try, try to dip his toes in the film business. But this is such – the film business and the movies overall at this point are silent movies. It's such a – you know it, like it's in such infancy, this business, that I don't blame the fact that he winds up quitting. He's like, there's not enough money in this. There's one full-length uh, feature movie that was supposedly his best. And then uh, because it was made from nitrate film back then, so it was like super low survivor rate – Right. Film historians basically thought this film was lost. And then, of course, there's one guy somewhere. Right. Always some private collector. That's like, well, actually, I have this film and the Houdini Museum in Scram, Pennsylvania, which is the Houdini Museum in the world. The directors in the museum begged this private collector, like, can you please show us to show it to us? So he actually brought him in and did a screening for them. They're like, oh, my gosh, like this is the lost film. You know, that's a full length feature of Harry Houdini. It's 71 minutes, which at the time for the time so was a super long film. And they begged him and begged him if they could somehow if he could somehow sell it to to Turner Classic Movies, which this guy finally does um, in like 2015. He winds up selling it to Turner Classic Movies. They spend millions of dollars restoring it and show it to the public for the first time in like 96 years in March of 2015, which I think is kind of cool. What else? As you mentioned earlier, private life, Uh, he was a pilot. He absolutely loved flying. It became kind of like his hobby towards the end. It's probably this whole like adrenaline thing he's got going here. You know, it's like the Tom Cruise of his time, I guess. Um, But I think what we really need to cover here and spend some time on this is kind of how passionate he was about debunking any spiritualists, right? Like psychics, mediums. He's like, no, these people are fakes. And he literally made it his business to like ruin some careers. So he started attending to Santa Santas, right? Accompanied by a reporter and a police officer. And he kind of hides and, you know, wears disguises. And he basically sits there and debunks them. He's like, all right, uh, this person's BSing because of this. Boom. And this person's BSing before, because of that. And he winds up publishing these stories on how he's debunking them in different newspapers. And eventually he even winds up writing um, a book in which he winds up exposing some of these other people. It's almost interesting, like... I don't know what it was like. Was he scarred by something at some point? Because this really seemed like a mission of his. You know, a magician among the spirits. Well, it was his mission. Like, that was one yeah. of his books.
1: Yeah, he just he just want he just didn't like them. For it. he just said, no, look, he had little patience for anyone who claimed to have supernatural powers. Like, no, that's not how it works. So he even offered people a ten thousand dollar reward if you could prove that you had psychic powers or any psychic phenomenon, which was a huge amount of money back then. And, um, you know, he he, he even um, testified before Congress in support of a bill um, that would outlaw pretending to tell fortunes or rewards. Fortune for tellers in Washington, D.C., yeah. right? Yeah. So Make he was illegal. like, he he did not want anything to do with these people. He did not trust them and stuff like that. And he even, I guess we can talk about it now, like after he dies, we talked, we talked about it earlier. Oh, the message like to his secret, wife, right? Secret message to his wife would be like, you know, if there is a way to communicate after death, this is the message. This is the only one thing I'm going to say. And then supposedly it's said, "What was it, um, Rosabel? Believe was it?" I believe it's yep. supposed to say. Someone did find up saying it, in the, but they found out that that person found out the code somehow or if using other clues was able to figure it out. So she, um, after ten years, she stopped doing the seances. But they still do them all the time around the country on Halloween. They have these Harry Houdini seances all the time if you're in Halloween, which is the anniversary of his. Uh,
0: yeah, and he died after, on Halloween. Like, what are the odds, he died right? On yeah. We know Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. He's the author of Sherlock Holmes, uh, at the time, an extremely popular author in the world. And he used to be friends with Houdini. But Doyle actually uh, believed in spiritualism and he, and he believed in spirits and he believed in the afterlife and all that stuff. And he refused to believe any of Houdini's exposés. And And he basically said that in a privately and eventually publicly, uh, Doyle would say that Houdini really was a powerful spiritualist medium. Like there's no way he could be doing what he does. And therefore, you know, there was, some, there was supposedly some paranormal abilities that he possessed. And um, Houdini took offense to that. And, and actually, basically, the two of them, this this most known magician in the world, and at the time, probably one of the most, if not the most popular um, author in the world, basically battled it out in different newspaper editorials. Like, nope, you're lying. Nope, you're lying. No, spiritualism is wrong. No, you're a spiritualist. It was kind of an, intense in a sense. Let's talk about his death. I feel like I mean that's a big yeah. Event, his right? death is
1: probably just as famous as his life, right? So right. there's some witnesses to this event, right? That takes place, but it kind of the understanding you have to um, backtrack a little bit to what happened a little bit beforehand, right? Yep. It, it's not just what happened. October eleventh,
0: nineteen twenty-six. I think right. Yeah, is, so, that, is that the Chinese water torture where he gets hurt? Yeah, the Chinese water you know? torture. That's what
1: happened. So on nineteen twenty-six, that's just one of his. He's um, while being shackled and while being shackled in his water torture cell. In Albany, New York, The um, he was struck in a leg by a piece of, like, faulty equipment, and it hobbled and he hobbled his way the rest of the show, and he found that he kind of fractured really badly his left ankle. Mm-hmm. So because of that, he was, and against Doctor's orders, he continued his tour and traveled to Montreal, where he gave a lecture at McGill University. And then October 22nd, he invited so many students to visit him in his dressing room, right, at yeah. the Princess Theater. And he, his ankle was sore, it was still bothering so he was... Sitting on a couch, they say it was like uh, hunched when, over, sitting on a couch. Yeah, hunched right? over, yeah. And, and it's a like random 8. student. Yeah, well, a student named James Gordon Whitehead, right, arrived and asked Houdini if it was true that he could resist hard punches to his abdomen, and it's something that Houdini did claim as long as he was like prepared for it and stuff like that. So, according to witnesses, um, this guy just started punching about, him. Yeah, well, not that guy who asked, but this other guy, Sam um, so, so, um, S- Smilovitz. 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 Yeah, it was, right? it was a witness. Um, said that the rumors were true. And then Whitehead started delivering four or five really hard, forceful um, blows to his Adlin. Well directed. This guy, like, this kid knew how to punch. And he just wailed on him, like four or five hard times right in the stomach. And Houdini was still reclining the couch and had no time to prepare for the punches. And he kind of like shrugged him off the punches, like tried to look like tough guy. But um, it definitely, it, you could tell he was in considerable pain. And that same evening, he began to complain of discomfort, stomach cramps. And his condition only got worse when, and then he boarded an overnight train for Detroit to continue to run these performances, even after his temperature rose to 104 degrees. Yep. Like nowadays, basically, if this was nowadays, he would never be allowed to do any of that stuff. They would take him right to the hospital. But yeah. This is still, you know, in the 1920s, so it's a little bit different. And um, so he, they suspected appendicitis and instructed him to go to the hospital, but he still says no. His, um, I think his temperature goes up to 106, right?
0: Yep. And the thing is, he, like, collapses. At one point, he collapses during the show. Then, like, they revive him. He's like, I can do this. He finishes it, and it collapses at the end.
1: Yeah. That would be his last show at the Garrick Theater. Yep. And then um, that's his last performance. He's taken to Detroit Hospital. They prepare for surgery. They remove his appendix. They saw that it ruptured several days earlier. And there was nothing they could really do, because they could tell it already. Once your appendix ruptures, and it poisons your insides. Yeah, you you don't have much time. You got to So he he clung to life for a while, but then he eventually dies on October thirty-first with his wife and his brothers by side. He never had kids. And um so the cause of his death was listed as a ruptured appendix. Um at the time. But that's what a lot of doctors said, but they said it's actually kind of rare for that to happen like that, like a traumatic appendicitis. were yeah. very rare. Um, but the insurance company paid out saying that he died in an accidental death. But obviously there's a lot of um
0: Yeah, he got double indemnity or whatever it's called, right? Double, yeah. Yeah, indemnity, but
1: there's a lot lot of um, also ideas that he was actually poisoned by spiritualists. Yep. And that kind of led to his death, but who knows? Well, besides
0: being poisoned by spiritualists, there's some evidence to suggest that the actual student that hit him was a spiritualist and or was in like cahoots, I guess, with spiritualists. And supposedly he was sent by them. To to deliver this blow, and not to kill him per se, but just to like hurt him, you know, and um, you know, and to this day, there's some people, there's books written about this. Like there was a spiritualist hit that beat him, and essentially led to this. Uh, Even in 2005, yeah, it doesn't happen often that you could rupture your appendix from blunt force. Like it needs to be like a car crash or something, you know. There's absolutely no evidence that could connect this student to any kind of criminal plot. So basically, they're like, hey, listen, Houdini died because of this, and. There, in 2008, um, Houdini's nef- grandnephew, I think, um, yeah. actually like, gave permission to, like, exhume Houdini's body. Like, let's check it out, see if he was poisoned. And some people are like, dude, just let it be. And even though he gave permission, no one's ever taken him up on it. So Houdini still lays in New York City Cemetery.
1: It's, it's in Queens, yeah.
0: And then this is, you know, kind of what you said before is that, you know, Houdini told his wife, like, all right, hold this seance. And then, you know, on the anniversary of my death and i will if it's possible come back to talk to you and she does this for like 10 years um every single anniversary of his death on halloween she holds a seance and it never panned out and finally she's like ah forget it like i can't keep on waiting for this guy and she kind of moves on um because houdini's ghost refuses to speak but to this day as you mentioned people show up and try to get houdini's ghost to talk to him on halloween Interesting. Yeah, he's
1: still a pop culture icon today. like Of course. Of his legacy. Yeah. There, there's a pop, popular culture, but also there's a whole bunch of, um, I think Adrian Brody even played him on a, on a TV miniseries in like yeah. 2014, but there's still, there's a Houdini museum. Like obviously he did all those things and it's a name that people know. Like even today people know who Harry Houdini is. They know that.
0: Yeah. Name. Like, right. If you say you Marilyn Monroe. Monroe boom. You know who I'm talking about. I say yeah. Elvis. You know who I'm talking about. Harry Houdini. I, it seems like people just yeah. know who what I'm, what I'm talking about. You know, it's, like, a name, yeah. it's a name. It's a name. He didn't really live that long. I mean, no, he could have done so more, so much more. Yeah, I mean, his no, wife lived to 1943. Uh, she ends up dying from, uh, I believe, a heart attack.
1: What else you got? Well, I do. You know, we do. Whenever we, when we do people, we kind of do these um, fun facts. So one that I did find that I thought was interesting. That I think a lot of people probably would know is that he actually assisted American war effort during World War One. Oh
0: yeah, yeah. He did tours, right? <laughs>
1: He, he did tours, but he also, like, he um was big on – he totally supported U.S. involvement, even though he was uh, born hungry. But also he did amazing money for the war effort. But he also um they took American troops and he held classes. And um he showed them how to escape sinking ships and to um, get themselves, like, from, um, from ropes. Out of ropes, handcuffs. Handcuffs yeah, and yeah. restraints in case they were captured. So he showed a lot of his, like, moves, things he would do. He actually, like, showed – Gave these like American, showed these to American soldiers so that they ever were captured and tied up, or if they were in a sinking ship, what to do, and stuff like that. Which is, I thought yeah. was interesting that like, giving them these skills.
0: Yeah, you know? and again, he was one of the pioneers of you know what eventually becomes a common practice in World War II, where you have uh, famous stars going out and entertaining troops. You know, whether it's yeah. eventually Korean War, Marilyn did. Monroe, or World War II, had Hollywood stars and. You know, the same thing, Woodrow Wilson, you know, basically used him and he he actually winds up canceling his tour uh, during World War One, and basically just devotes himself to entertaining soldiers and raising money. Like he goes from base to base to base, which I
1: think is kind of cool. That's pretty cool. You have Houdini, you have his life, you have his acts and then you have his death and then like, all well, everything that goes with that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that pretty much covers Harry Houdini or as the Sounds job you us would say, Houdini. No, you stop saying that. Dude, I'm telling you, they say <laughs> Houdini. Watch stars. Okay. Houdini. I'm,
1: sure, I'm George Lucas, uh, right? George it was like Lucas a, it was like right a
0: subtle or not so subtle, like, hey, I like Harry Houdini kind of thing.
1: I thought they just made all those noises, but like banging pieces of metal together. They did the actually. Of I started making of it, it was pretty cool. Yeah. So I don't. But okay. Yeah, anyway. if it sounds like Harry Houdini, you go yeah. with that, Pete. Yep. Yeah. I know, please.
0: Anyway, so we're we're kind of uh we're getting close, Tom. We're getting close to our 100th episode. I mean, I can't believe yes. we've been doing this for this is our 96th episode, which doesn't include really? the short lectures. Like that's a that's a that's a lot of episodes.
1: So that's a lot of time we've been doing this.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of time. But it, what's interesting too is like here we are and we're like, dude, we should do this. And then you'll be like, we did that already. Oh yeah, we did. <laughs> like, no, how about this? Yeah, I think we did that too yeah that's 100 episodes a lot so we're trying to plan something uh something special or something cool for the 100th episode so uh you know we'll, we'll keep you guys updated if this actually pans out if we because we have so many plans that it usually fall through because you know because <laughs> then like monday you know like the weekend turns into monday and then we're like well that sucked like <laughs> back to work next time next time but yeah we'll, we'll figure something out but until then Everyone, thank you so much for listening and tuning in. We really do appreciate it. hope everyone has an awesome week. If you need to find us, you can find us at www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com. We are there to answer any of your questions. Make sure you click that subscribe button and enjoy your week, everyone. See you next week.
1: Stay safe, everybody.
0: hope everyone enjoyed our podcast and if you would like to email us you can do so at history teachers podcast at gmail.com
1: hello everyone